0: good morning this morning we are reading out of third john so if you want to turn there with me there's some bibles in front of you or else you can just read up front the elder to the beloved gaius whom i love in truth Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you be may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking, you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but diatrophies... I knew it. Dietrophies... Sorry for brutalizing that. Who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Greet the friends, every one of them. God, give us understanding of your word.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, If you've talked to me at all, you know that I am a nerd. Uh, It's not a confession. I'm not saying this because this is a sermon about me, but to illustrate something. This is a book that is easy to overlook. No Great Reformation has been centered on its teachings. No controversy has uh, upheld um, major division or schism in the church based on Third John. No debate, no long debates have been centered around what John says in this book. And being a nerd, someone who loves to argue and debate, this made this a hard passage for me to wrap my mind around. Many of you are probably like me in this regard, having read Third John as a flyover book uh, in your read your Bible in your reading plan. I find it easier to think about obscure details and theories, arguments and counterpoints than anything else. I remember early in my walk as a Christian, a friend said, "I can't wait to meet the person who you, who marries you. I bet she'll be great at debating theology." A wiser man, we were working on a church library at the time, immediately said, I think Peter's more likely to marry someone that will ground him, that will be really good at loving people. Thankfully, I think that's correct. Um, Because while I love debate, I need no help in doing that. I'm perfectly able to think I'm right and contend with every fiber of my being. I can argue the evidence of the historical Jesus and the reliability of scriptures without breaking a sweat. Knowing what the gospel is as a logical syllogism is not the same thing as living out the truth of the gospel. And that's what we find in 3 John, an example of how knowing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply expresses itself in the voice of John as an elder to the early church addressing one specific person. Gaius as a fellow-believer. And I'll put my teaching hat on for a second and teach you all about a logical fallacy. False dilemma is a term for a logical error that frames an issue as having two different opposing options that has no quarter between them, no compromise or alternatives. You're either, to use an American term, Democrat or Republican. You're a liberal or you're a conservative. You either support business and economic growth, or you support the environment. All the subtlety and nuance, possible cause and effect, hidden assumptions, are glossed over for a simple either-or. You're with us or against us. America, love it or leave it. This, a false dilemma presents itself frequently in political discussions, but even in church circles. Are we primarily to study the Word, or are we to love others? Are we to focus on orthodoxy, the practice, uh, sorry, right, right and sound doctrine and thinking, or orthopraxy, right action, good behavior? Is our organizing principle our primary goal to emphasize John fourteen six? I am the way, the truth, and the life, none come to the Father except through me? Or James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We often ignore that last part, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, or at least in discussions like this. Are we to preach according to 1 Corinthians 2.3, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Or do we direct the church to follow Micah 6.8? And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Christians often frame discussions in this way about ministry. Are we to feed the sheep, teaching clear and true doctrine, or to seek to be inviting those who are unchurched In in terms of church discipline? Are we to rebuke sin in our congregation? Or will that weird people out and seem judgmental? And Jesus said not to judge after all even in music? Should we have good musicians and entertaining styles or focus on deep theological music from generations past? If not in our church, we never have those kind of arguments in our church, then in churches we've known. The church we went to in Ontario had a big emphasis the last two years before COVID, remember that time? Um, On outreach, but no evangelical training or preparation or encouragement. The emphasis was would be that we ha- be the hands and faces and feet of Jesus, loving people that would come into our church to play pickleball or board games or whatever. Eventually, they would just be we would just be thought of as so cool that they'd want to come to church, but without a having, without but they wouldn't if we if they thought we were just weird Jesus people. Again, this is a false dilemma. But here in jo- John's third letter, we see an example that this is that this is not a th- we see in John. John's third letter, an example not of a theological treatise, but of a pastoral letter. A letter aimed to edify and build up Gaius. It's also the same author who wrote the deeply theological and intense 1st John. As an elder, we we might see John as a model for our own elders. But also, we should be reminded that that should be a model for all of us believers. That might seem strange, but as Pastor John, Josh, has been teaching us during eldership training, um, one of the things we see in First Timothy 3, which is the requirements of an elder, we see that they're the same requirements as, an, as any other believer, just with a higher expectation of adherence, seriousness that those standards are. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task, therefore an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if he does not know how to manage his own household, how how will he care for God's church?" He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil." When we're looking at John as an elder, we see an example not of only of what our elders are supposed to do, but what we're supposed to do. It's not as if elders are called to be sober, but everyone else can just get drunk whenever they want. Or that elders, ha- or non-elders, have no obligation to raise their children in training and admonition of the Lord. Elders are supposed to be aspirational, so that congr- congregants, the church, and fellow believers can look at them not as people who are perfect, but people who have some people who the congregation should aspire to be like. Four. Instance, Paul says to the church in Corinth that we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ, 1 Corinthians 11. 1. And here we see in John's letters things that each of us should do, That's John, that John's doing, as elders are required to do. John is not asking guys to do things he himself wouldn't do. We are all called to grow in our ability and willingness to teach each other to some degree, Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and are able to instruct one another. We've been going through Romans, and sometimes it seems like Paul's Paul's rebuke is clear, but here he's saying that to the Roman church that they are capable of teaching one another. We all have to be able to know the truth and answer accordingly. This is from 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, and always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. We're all called to be able to answer questions about our faith. And we're all called to shepherd each other. Uh, We're all called to correct sin and call out specific false and abusive teachings. Ephesians 5.11. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We're all called to encourage other people in their path to knowing Christ more, 1 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. And in so doing, we see how the first letter of John informs and supports this specific letter to Gaius. How many people have been coming to the... uh, the Wednesday night Bible studies. We've been reading 1 John. So, 3 John. The elder to my friend Gaius, whom I love in truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified to your faithfulness, to the truth, telling you how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. Here John, as an elder of the churches of Asia Minor, addresses Gaius, who is a dear friend. There's a lot of assumptions about when or from where John writes this letter, or who Gaius is specifically. Is he a leader of the church, or many churches, or an elder, or is he just some friend? Is this the Gaius that travels with Paul in Acts 19 and 20? We have answers... To none of these with any certainty. But what we do know is that John writes a personal letter with none of the theological arguments or admonitions of his first letter. What we know is that John does not confront any sin or controversy in Gaius' life. And that John shows affection, shows nothing but affection in this letter. He shows appreciation, gratefulness, and encouragement to Gaius. For his health, for his soul. And that others testified for Gaius' faithfulness or to Gaius' faithfulness. John finds great joy in Gaius' faithfulness. In English, we'd be tempted to say John is proud of Gaius. But in biblical language, it's more accurate to say John is pleased with Gaius and has great affection for him. John makes special note that Gaius is walking in the truth. But what does that mean according to John? Here we see the clear teachings of how John's first letter applies to John's third. It means Gaius is not walking in the darkness, 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if John is saying that Gaius is walking in the truth, that means he is not walking in darkness. Not just standing in the truth, that's important in some circumstances, but it emphasizes movement and growth, gradual, steady progress. In knowing Christ more, rather than continuing or progressing in sin. If Gaius is walking in the truth, it also means he's not arrogantly claiming falsely to be free of sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We know Gaius seeks to follow the commands of Jesus. 1 John 2.4 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we know Gaius is following what Christ commanded. Gaius evidently seeks to listen to John and the other apostles. 1 John 4. We are from God, and this is 1 John 4, 6. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever, does not, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John's we in this is talking about the apostles. So evidently, Gaius listens to the testimony of the apostles and the teachings of the apostles faithfully. This is what walking in the truth is for John. Not being perfect, but seeking to follow the commands of Christ. Holding to the true gospel as passed down from the apostles. Repenting of sin and recognizing that we need a savior and that God is ultimately the one who rescues us. In fact, in John's writing, truth has a personification. In the most literal way ever, it's Jesus. False teaching is teaching that denies Jesus. John has the truth because he knew Jesus. These are all good things, but they all come from a recognition of the factuality of who God is, and who we are, and what God has done for us. If we get these assertions wrong, we fundamentally change our responses. If we believe ourselves to not be sinful, for instance, we seek no, no, we seek no repentance. We see no need for it. We fail to guard ourselves against temptations, believing that we are good, and walk into the all-too-common habit of self-justification. Everything can be justified when we allow the idea that we are not laden and constricted with sinful flesh to come into our thinking. Every atrocity, unkindness, cruelty, unfaithfulness can be accepted and justified. I was tired. I was angry. They did it first. They did worse to me. I deserve it. They don't. All masks for the reality that we sin. The truth of the gospel means nothing if it's something we merely agree to and sign off on. A said a thing we said one time, an answer we got right in a true or false quiz. It has to be something we live and believe in. If we believe in them as much as we believe in gravity or that the sun will rise tomorrow, we live according to that truth. Then we walk in the truth. That's what Gaius is doing. It's what John is commending, and it's what we're to commend in each other. Third John five through eight. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. John also commends that truth has implications on more than just our intellectual and personal lives. The truth in 1 John 3, 18, Dear children, let us, not, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The truth led Gaius to give generously to his brothers and sisters, who he did not know because they were united in that truth helping them on their mission, and engaging in hospitality. One thing we noticed when we began attending here is how readily people open their homes to us. And it's something we aim to do, and we do when we can. But sometimes it's with each other. Sometimes it's a visiting pastor or families from halfway around the world that we hardly know. Again, we see John commending in Gaius the qualities that's required of an elder, but also should be practiced by all Christians. Everyone loves philanthropy, especially when they're on the receiving end of it. But this good work emerges from John's teaching, not as something nice that will bestow honor from others, but as a right response to the love, provision, and generosity granted to us by God, most fully and completely through the, death, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ." after all in first john 4 1921 i always remember this verse because it's inscribed in my wedding ring um, we love because he first loved us whoever loves to love god whoever claims to love god yet hates his brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love god whom they have not seen and he has given us this command anyone who loves god must love their brother and sister we are to give because so much has been given to us. We should welcome and eat with others because that's what communion is, the breaking of bread and sharing of wine that we all share due to the finished work and broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. We ought to eat with others. We ought to eat with others. We ought to share. We ought to love generously, but more than than that, we get to because of who we belong to. That's how orthodoxy, sound doctrine, I'm going to say that word a lot. That's how sound doctrine leads to right practice, orthopraxy. If we view God, if we view the things God has blessed us with as ours, our time, our money, our gifts, our children, we resent when they're imposed on us or demanded from us or when they don't turn out the way we want. If they are gifts that do not belong to us, but were given to us to build up the body of Christ, then we start to cease resenting impositions on them. But if we see them as ours, any, any need, any request, any demand is an assault on our sovereign rights. From C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters illustrates this temptation accurately. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax, that portion of his property, which has to be made over to his employers, and as a generous donation, the further portion which he allows for his religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt, this is from a demonic perspective, what he must never be permitted to do do is doubt that, that, in the sense from which these deductions have been made are, in some sense, his own personal birthright. You have a delicate task. The assumption which you, cannot go, you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, cannot even fo- you cannot even find a shred of argument in its defence. That man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. If it comes to him, it's purely as a gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his own personal property. Yesterday, our foster son was supposed to have a visit with his family. A six-hour period when we would not have to watch him, make sure he didn't eat anything he shouldn't, make sure he didn't run into a wall. Um, Time to get some stuff done. And then his family canceled. So all my plans were ruined. My plans, my time, they belonged to me. If we recognize the truth that God grants these things to us, including our time and our health and our wealth and our minds and our skills, how can we rightly be impatient with others when they impose on us? Or be tight-fisted with the money God has given us? Or boast about our talents when they were granted to us by God? In this way, orthopraxy, right practice, the practice of humility, generosity, and hospitality, things everyone loves, including non-believers, can only follow from orthodoxy. We receive these things purely as gifts from a sovereign Lord. John, 3 John 9-12 through 12. I wrote to the church, but diatrophonies, that's how I pronounce it, Brenda, I may be totally wrong, who loves to be first will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, speaking malicious nonsense about us, Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. In an age where tolerance is our culture's highest form of love, the temptation exists to gloss over the sins of our friends and even political leaders in order to favor those who are on our side. John, as an elder, demonstrates that he is willing to do the hardest job required of an elder and of a Christian, that of gently and then later clearly and firmly rebuking sin. But this isn't an easy sin or scandal to rebuke or even see. It's not even a false teaching in itself. No specific heresy is mentioned. He loves to be first. That's it. How many of us would define ourselves as competitive in a dismissive or minimizing way? Or self-centered? That's not a big deal. Everyone does that, right? But yet again, we see the way the malicious way that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy and how a lack of right thinking and belief leads to greater and greater sin. As a follower of Christ, who's to be first? Christ. But Diotrephes wants to be first. As a result, he will not welcome either the apostle nor his teaching. This seems absurd But we, we in our age, sometimes we in the church, and sometimes us, we per, personally, we do the same when we, when we minimize Jesus' words to justify sin. When we prefer judge not. When we run to his forgiveness rather than recognizing his hatred of sin and then recognizing his forgiveness. Or casually, yeah, Or casually saying he forgives us as if it didn't cost the crucifixion. But a false sinful belief doesn't sit on its own. It grows and reaches out. It refuses to listen to the apostle, John, or share his letter with the church. Diatryphonies then refuses to meet with others bearing the gospel and then puts out those who offer hospitality to other Christians. John needs to call this out. But not just to die Trifenes' face, which he plans to do, clearly, but also to give Gaius a warning of this. In our age we fear being confrontational, being viewed as negative or aggressive. Some denominations go so far as to speak against the pastor. go so far as to say that speaking against a pastor is speaking against the anointed of God, the equivalent of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But here we see another application of the gospel that applies to elders specifically, but also laymen. The need to confront false teaching and sinful behavior. And I dearly love apologetics, so I want to go on a brief tangent. But if you ever want to know a simple way to deal with a questionable doctrine that somebody shares with you, the easiest thing to say is just, where does it say that in the Bible? This is contrasted with Di- uh, Demetrius. John doesn't merely give guys someone to avoid and not imitate, not just in theology but also in action, but also gives him an alternative mentor. We all need mentors, and to mentor others. The world does this, but in a fundamentally different way, with different reasons. The intern is presented... The internship is presented as a learning opportunity, but it's usually just grunt work, for free, with a dangled job opportunity at the end. The intern seeks access to a possibly lucrative career, and the mentor sees free labor. Paul himself urges believers to imitate him as he imitates Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and that we are to instruct each other in godliness, Romans 15.14. So reiterating what I said before. I am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Peter commands elders to be examples for the flock. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 2-3. The end and aim of this is not to gain wealth or prestige, but the building up of the body and seeing Christ reflected more and more in the people we share communion with. That is part of the purpose of communion, of the shared bread and cup. It's one of the reasons why the move, in some cases, to satellite, remote, or multiple churches, services, are not innovations, but really delusions of the body. Communion, among other things, is a symbol of our oneness in Christ. And in Christ, we encourage to bear, confess, mourn with each other as, as a body, in order that we can all resemble Christ more truly and completely. And that's where we come to reiterate John's final salutation and benediction. John's shortest letter feels so short and easy to pass by, but he demonstrates in the role of an elder, the example that we ought to see in Christian life centered on truth, discerning and rebuking wolves, commending and encouraging deep community that gives and builds up rather than seeks for itself. In his final salutation, he encourages and demonstrates his love, not just for Gaius, but for the believers in the church there. And all of this is based on his belief that Jesus' is truth and that leads to all of these wonderful things. Let us do the same, not out of false belief that we must in order to be the church, but because we are the church, the redeemed of God. Because of that, we are able to love one another. The surest sign that we have the truth is that we can live this out more deeply with each other in community. I have much more to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and that we will talk face-to-face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord.
2: On this and on the wing, he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. would wait as we constantly run what father so tender is calling us home he welcomes the weakest the vilest the poor our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord more What riches of kindness He lavished on us His blood was the payment His life was the cost We stood neath a debt we could never afford